Welcome to Bell Curve. I'm Liz Bashirs, joined by my co-hosts, Rachel Breyers and Mary Scott Hunter. Every couple of months, we have a Bell Curve book club episode where we deep dive into a book that we've, all three of us, have read and loved. You know, we try to give you a little bit of a heads up so you can read it and discuss it with us as well. Just a, just a little caveat here. If you haven't read this month's book, The Push, by first-time author Ashley Audrain, Go pick it up at your local bookstore, go to our website and find a link to buy it. We are going to be talking through the plot of the book and some some of uh, it's going to be some spoilers. So if you haven't read it yet, you might want to come back and listen to this episode after you have. But we're also going to share some fun things that are not quite related to the book. So <laughs> um, keep keep tuned if you're not planning on reading it to begin with. So this time, when it was my turn to pick, I was really trying to think through, you know, part of my 2021 resolutions was to read more exceptional fiction. I feel like the last couple of years, I've read so many like self-help, self-personal development books. And a lot of them are just kind of the same stuff over and over again, it feels like. And so I was like, you know, this year, I want to read some really good, compelling fiction because that's something I enjoy. So I chose the new release, The Push, by, like I said, first-time author Ashley Audrain. And But before I jump into what the book was about, I want to ask you ladies a snap question here. What is the first word that comes to mind when you think about this book? disturbing Disturbing. distressing (laughs) did i take yours rachel we said it at the same time disturbing this book is unsettling oh my goodness it was Uh, you know so instead of just describing the plot i'm going to use the author's own words uh, that she said in a recent interview to give her how she views her own book uh quote blythe connor comes from a long history of women who have struggled with motherhood but she's determined to break the cycle with her own daughter violet Not long after Violet is born, though, Blythe begins to suspect something isn't right. She's different than other children her age and acts in malicious ways. Her husband can't see what Blythe sees. He thinks her concerns about Violet are all in her head. But when everything Blythe fears is crystallized into one tragic moment, they all must reckon with the repercussions and the unsettling notion that she might have been right. It's a story about the anxieties and expectations of motherhood, whether we can ever really know the people we hold closest, and what happens when we don't listen to women's truths. Now, I'm not here to tell the author that she's wrong about her own book by any means, but I think there's a larger thing that she leaves out of this spiel, and it's one of self-fulfilling prophecy. Blythe was so scared. And we see we do throughout the book, there are flashbacks to tell the stories of her mother and grandmother. And, and we see that she is so scared to repeat those mistakes of her mother and grandmother that I think she unintentionally treats her daughter as something to be feared from the very beginning. So there was there was this was on one of the very last pages, I think in the last chapter, but there's a flashback to the day before Blythe's mother leaves. And she she's brushing Blythe's hair and says, You know, there's a lot about ourselves that we can't change. It's just the way we're born. But some parts of us are shaped by what we see and how we're treated by other people, how we're made to feel. So if if you read along with us, this isn't a spoiler, but if you don't want to know a major plot point, again, maybe you should stop here. Go buy the book at your local bookstore. But Violet is a psychopath. She kills at least two little boys as a child. And we're led to believe she kills a third as a young teenager. Two of those boys are her brother and half-brother. I mean, something was something was wrong here. So, you know, we talk about or we hear think about things like nature versus nurture. 
Um, so apparently the question of if serial killers and psychopaths are born or quote unquote made is a very contentious one in science. But, but according to an article I read in Psychology Today, it is almost certainly both. So neuroscientist Jim Fallon, who has no relation to the late night comedian, was able to pick out the brains of serial killers based just on their structure alone. Like he was just, he looked at brain scans and was able to pick out the ones of hmm. um, Marilyn Manson. That, wow. Marilyn Manson. That's <laughs> the singer. <laughs> the singer. Oh, Marilyn. Charles Manson. <laughs> Charles Manson. <laughs> okay, go back on that one. Maybe Marilyn Manson. I don't know. Don't sue me, please. Uh, <laughs> and the Unabomber and all these other, all these other. Um, Ted Bundy type guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ted Bundy. All the, these. So they had a difference in their brain. So he said, um, to, to test this idea objectively, he set up a blind trial where colleagues sent him 70 different brain scans. Some of the people had a diagnosis of some sort of brain disease, like schizophrenia or depression. And some were people with no diagnosis. And then some were convicted killers. Fallon was able to successfully identify the killer brains with 100% success. Hmm. Huh. He said they all had one thing in common a loss of function in the orbital cortex above the eyes. This is the circuit that codes for ethics, morality, conscience. And when that's gone or doesn't develop, not only does a person have no sense of morality, but also has little control over their impulses. What do y'all think about that? We watched a documentary that was fascinating about the Unabomber. And the thing that was so fascinating about this is they interviewed his mother, Ted Kaczynski's mother, and she said, you know, in those days, a newborn at times, you know, they would be hospitalized and, you know, they would not touch them. And, you know, so, so apparently Ted Kaczynski went very, very early, went into a hospital where he was just like left in a crib with like no touch for a long, long time. And just she always wondered. So kind of getting to the theme of the book. She always wondered what influence did that have because he had a very normal and healthy upbringing otherwise. One other thing that happened to him was that he went off to Harvard and they were doing some psychology experiments at that time before they had things like international boards of review to make sure that these were not <laughs> traumatizing experiences. And he went through some pretty traumatic, psychological, almost torturous experiments while he was at Harvard. So so, I, you know, it is an interesting question. What effect on the brain is, is brought about by nurture? You know, I think it's tempting to think, and we'll get into this a little bit further, that the brain, the brain function is kind of predetermined or, you know, it's genetic or, but I do think that it's a muscle. I mean, you, you, if, if you are not practicing kindness and empathy, uh, you know, you're not, you're not learning that skill. You're not learning how to, you know, maybe it doesn't come to you naturally, but if you, but if it's modeled for you, if you, you know, if you get that in your, um, you know, as a, as a goal that your parents give you, and if they model it for you or somebody models it for you, you know, I do think that could make a difference. Maybe it wouldn't, but it could. And I, I just, I just wonder if at a point, you know, you think about people that go through terrible things and traumas and, or series of trauma that lasts a long time, you know, you, you do would tend to think that that you would have to shut that part of your brain down to handle it, uh, you know. And so then, what happens when you need to 
you know, click it back on, you know, and it, it doesn't just click back on. I mean, we've all been there where, you know, we've had to kind of go into maybe a self-protection mode in our marriages, in our, in our work, in our, in, 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 in the, you know, you, when that thing that's driving that self-protection mode is over, it doesn't just, your emotions and your, and your thoughts don't just switch, <laughs> you know, it, so it's, Interesting. Interesting. Well, and to get to the character, you know, she she never explicitly, I don't think, in the story says, I wonder if Violet is the way she is because I left her in her crib crying all those days. But you you pick up on that that question that you know must have haunted Blythe. She wonders, is it because, you know, I put on my headphones and listen to music and let her cry day after day when she was a baby. And I think the larger theme here that adds to the disturbing nature of the book is that if you are a parent, you wonder what piece of your own behaviors do affect your children and, and their, you know, their long-term decisions. Mm-hmm. So are there, I mean, I think we've all inherited fears we, we all struggle with, with fears and concerns around parenting. I'm not, a, I'm not a mother, I'm not a parent, but you know, whether it's fear of what, if we're doing the right things or the wrong things or you know, how we approach different situations, is that, it, it, does that kind of fear resonate with you two, both of whom are mothers? Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you really don't, it's not reasonable to think that you will raise your kids perfectly. There's, there's no such thing. You do your best. You, and look, there are times when the baby cries and you, you know, you, you just, you're exhausted and you just can't drag your way in there for a few minutes. You know, they're just, I I think to hold yourself to the standard that you're, you're going to do no damage to your kids is an impossible standard because there's got to be something you're doing that's messing them up. I mean, the goal would be that you do so many things that really put them on the right path that, you know, the little things where you, you know, didn't do it as well as you'd like, or you, you know, you, you provided some negative influence, you know, you know, maybe based on one of your own hangups, probably absolutely based on your own hangups, you just kind of hope and pray that, you know, the love that you have for them, the care that you, the consistent care that you give them, all the other things that you do really win the day. That's, that's kind of how I think about it. I really do think probably there's some things, you know, that my neurotic self about lists and schedules, you know, I think my kids are, I hope my kids are learning schedules and my hope is that they will be able to make schedules for themselves. But, but the reality is they may grow up and like, I am never keeping a schedule. I am never having a calendar. (laughs) That's you know? what your list is triggering. <laughs> yes, they might, they might hate that kind. You know, I hope not, but I, I do sometimes wonder if you know, so with the very best of intentions, if I'm, you know, if I'm causing some negative outcome in the future. I hope not, but and I pray not, but you know, you just don't know. Well, and I think you know one of the things my mom has said that I really appreciate is you know a way to to not go through life feeling guilty about your your past decisions that maybe had an influence on your children is just did you do the best with what you knew at the time at the time at the time yes. and I believe most of us are doing the the best we possibly can do within the limits of you know just who who we are the information that we have a lot of us read parenting books that we you know you find out ten years later we're just wrong I mean you know. <laughs> make decisions based on the science of the time. And the other thing is that children truly are, we're all, we're resilient. 
you know, when your brain is growing as a young person, you know, I think absent major trauma, we can trust that they, um, they're going to be better for, for having to adapt and learn in, in natural, normal ways that maybe perhaps aren't perfect. I love that. And, you know, I think through some of the ways that the things that I want to be cautious about if I ever have children and, you know, a, a specific thing that comes to mind for me is just being very careful of how I portray my relationship with health and with food and how the strides, not necessarily because of anything my parents did, but because of kind of the, the pressures that culture tend to put on us as women, uh, that's a script uh, that I've had to, to work really hard to rewrite my life that, you know, food doesn't fall into good and bad categories and that it is fuel for you. And, and you shouldn't punish yourself for have something that's having something that's quote unquote bad, that exercise is a celebration of, of movement and that it feels good. It's not punishment for eating something quote unquote bad. So that that's the kind of thing that on a very small level, you know, we sometimes translate to our children the wrong messages about topics like that. So as somebody, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's not a, a mom, those are the little things I'm scared of. <laughs> I'm not necessarily thinking scared of my child turning into a psychopath, but I, I do want to go back to this study with um, that Dr. Jim Fallon did because there's a twist to it. He scanned his own brain and his own brain structure was one of a psychopathic killer. Really? But you know what? He's not a serial killer. Mm. Mm. Our, our, our paths. So what he took away from it is that our, our paths are not, you know, are not determined by the structure of our brains Our you know, we don't have to be ruled by our proclivities. We don't have to be ruled by that impulsiveness. If that's a, a thing that um, you struggle with. And so it really, really is according to the science, both nature and nurture. The, the way he really puts it is that that brain structure, that lack of impulse control for somebody who's going to be like a serial killer, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Hmm. So you do have to have that other part of, you know, for, to have that trauma, to have that. Um, something switches something. The, or flips mm-hmm. the switch, something that was, his take, that, that was his yeah. take away from research, mm-hmm. which I thought was fascinating. But how can you imagine getting that brain scan and be like, oh, holy moly, <laughs> my orbital cortex is smaller than all of these, all of these serial killers. <laughs> but here I am in a lab <laughs> instead of in a prison. <laughs> I think that's kind of expected. Yeah, because I I think at some level we and I read a few articles leading up to this and there's the extremist on both sides that said basically it's predetermined your your genetics, you know, you're predetermined really how you're going to behave. And there's twin studies and sibling studies and all that. And then there's the and then there's the other end of the spectrum and there's terms for these nativist, I think, is one term. And but there's on the other end, there's people that think it's all nurture. It's all your environment. I think I would tend to be more if there's if you think about it like a spectrum, I would tend to lean more towards nurture, you know, where you can point the finger at nurture, you know, for these terrible outcomes. But that said, I think there's probably examples that below that, you know, that are just the outliers that, you know, they have childhoods that are just fine and, and they turn out terrible. So it's not neat and tidy and thus it makes for a really good fiction. I mean, this was a page turner, y'all. As, as you know, as the words that we use might imply that um, we didn't love it. I, 
I can't, I can't think of a book. I told you all this after I finished it. I can't think of a book that I loved or hated more and didn't hate because it wasn't a page turner. It was a total page turner. But it just, when you read that last sentence, holy moly, you were, it was unsettling. It was disturbing. You know, I couldn't sleep. Well, and, you know, to get to your your point about, you know, I, I, if, you, if you've taken those genetic tests, I took one this year, the 23andMe, whoa, all of a sudden, things that you just don't realize have anything to do with your genetics are actually pretty accurately tied to <laughs> a long string of your ancestors and DNA. For instance, you know, those people who j- cannot stand the sound of people chewing, like there's, there's folks who that is a real, I always thought, well, it's just a, an, an odd pet peeve. That's a genetic trait. They can pinpoint. And they, they call, yeah, they call it misophonia. <laughs> People who have almost like a, an, a, a uh, I reaction. I somebody that has it in my household. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be nicer to that person. <laughs> that, that is a genetic trait that you can like almost be provoked to a feeling of rage by the sound of somebody chewing. There's other things like fear of heights, uh, fear of public speaking, whether you tend to like the taste of cilantro. These are things that are tied to your DNA. I mean, how interesting Mm. is that? What implications does that have for, I just don't know if I like the implications for our lives, uh, you know, around that. I don't like that. that I I don't know. It seems an American or something that you're born with, with, you know, these genes and you're going to be this. And I, I just, you're spoken like a true Enneagram eight who hates to be controlled. (laughs) I am totally. I am. But you know, the, the thing about, um, Liz had said that one of her goals for, you know, 2021 was to read more exceptional fiction. And I'm in the same category as you, Liz, where I I read a lot of professional development, a lot of personal development. This book really got me, it got me going on on fiction again. I, I It was like this breath of fresh air to start a new habit. Right when I finished that, I immediately picked up Winner's Bone, which is an incredible fiction book, went straight into another fiction book. And now I'm reading Lonesome Dove. So I'm like, I'm with you, Liz. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know what, time for some fiction in my life. I, you know, it really is kind of refreshing to it's almost a little bit of escapism in a, especially in a in a world over the last year, I don't know about y'all, but I've really felt like, in a lot of ways, the pressure to prove your productivity has never been at a higher level. Hmm. Even though we're all going through kind of this weird new world together and trying to adapt to it, particularly the first like six months of it or so, it was just a rush to to see how we could like shoehorn the old world into the new world. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I do think though, that books, fiction books, novels get underrated for their ability to teach us how to behave. Hmm. Um, I do think that there's a lot to be learned from fiction because, I mean, it's it's not the same as reading um, self-improvement. It's not the same as reading the news. It's not the same as writing that is directed at a certain topic directly. But there's a lot to be learned from great fiction. So, Liz, one of the things I know that you were thinking about is, for this book is what what parts of it really stood out. Can I speak to that? Because I'm dying to. Go for it. All right. So ah, there's two things that like stood out to me in this book. And one of them is the character of her husband. 
Hmm. I hated him. Hated him from the first moment I met him to the end. He was an enabler, in my opinion. He, I think he did not, uh, she herself, when she talks about her book, says her husband can't see what Blythe sees. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. He didn't want to see what Blythe sees. He didn't want to think about what might be happening. And because he wouldn't help her because he, because he uh, stood by instead of, you know, there was a terrible incident. And this is the other one when baby, um, baby Violet viciously bit her mother on the cheek and her grandmother was a witness to it. You know, that's the kind of moment, you know, children biters get treated very seriously by daycares. You know, there's, there, and I don't know, I didn't read any research on biters, but, but biting is early on is a bad sign. Now, I didn't have any biters. I know, you know, parents who've dealt with biters, it can be a really horrible thing to unwind. And I know in my pediatrician's office, there was always literature laying around to deal with children that bite. And I think that moment was a moment when the whole family could have come together and said, all right, we have to build a wall around this child and, and really help her to be learn empathy. You know, they could have been very concerted about that and maybe headed off what happened later, but best I can tell nobody, everybody just kind of said, Oh, okay. It's just, it, these things happen. You know, the grandmother was obviously um, very, you know, she had to pry baby Violet's mouth off of her mother's cheek, but you know, this was a moment when grandma and dad and her son, um, husband and, and Blythe could have all sat down and said, okay, something's going on here. We need to figure this out. We need to get some help. We need to, you know, and that to me was the moment when I thought this is not going to go well. And I do think that there are those signs in, in the lives of your children where, you know, and you see it every now and then, look, we all have proclivities. We all have it. And I, for, for me, I, you know, when I noticed in one of my children, a proclivity towards insensitivity and unkindness, you know, it, it became very important then that, you know, when I spoke to him, I spoke to him a certain way. It became very important that we address that because you can't live a happy life uh, and be unkind. You know, that's, that's not going to work well for you and not going to work, work well for the people you want to be in relationships with. So anyway, those two those, those characters that, um, especially her husband, the husband and the grandmother, I, I deeply disliked the husband because I don't think it was he can't. I think it's that he wouldn't. Um, and, the, and the grandmother, I think, did see it, but wasn't willing to stand up to her son and say, mm-hmm. hey, no, you need to take Blythe seriously because this is a problem. So I, I do, but I, I also want to push back on and say, go back to what I felt was a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy of, and I'd love to know y'all's feelings on this. I don't know that that first death when she was like four and she, she were led to believe she pushed the little boy off the slide and he ended up dying. I don't know if that was her or not, or if that was an accident or not. And I know we're, you know, that's part of the book is we don't know if it's an accident or not um, because she does cop to killing her brother, but we don't, she never, she never actually admits to killing the little boy the first little boy of how much of who she is later in life is having been treated like a killer by her mother as a child. Mm. 
I think that they needed as hard and as terrible and awful as it was. There were points early on when they needed to get to the bottom of things. As terrible as it is that she might have tripped that boy, that was a point in time when she was little enough that I do think, you know, not all would be forgiven. Certainly the family that lost a child, it's devastating. But at that point in time, you know, you could prevent future. I mean, and you don't have a crystal ball, but I do think those kind of that kind of truth that is kind of floating around out there can't be ignored. There are just things in life that if you don't get to the bottom of something with your child, if you don't really dive down as deep as you can dive, as awful as it is and as painful as it is and figure out what's going on, then it's going to plague them. And I don't, I don't think they did the work either. Blythe, Blythe tried, she suspected, but she didn't have support and the and the other adults that had influence sat by. That's what I think. You get the sense too, that part of it was appearances. You know, the, the husband Mm -hmm. was very concerned that they appear and be the vision that he had constructed of a perfect family. He didn't like the way Blythe was turning out. He didn't like the vision that she was portraying of who, how his daughter was turning out. And so you wonder if part of his coping mechanism for having his vision not come to fruition was suppressing information that could have been dealt with. And it, it kind of brings to question, you know, you learn, like you said, Mary Scott, you learn from fiction. In what areas of our parenting are we not willing to confront reality because of how it might make us appear to the larger community who might be affected by our children's behavior? You know, what ways do we not deal with things because we're afraid our child will be labeled? Yeah, I mean, look, there's things about your anybody in your life that you love that you just kind of have to let go of, you know, the, the, the example of people who don't like chewing, you know, don't like the sound of chewing. I mean, maybe you just let that one go, you know, (laughs) but when you see, when you witness cruelty in your child or you witness a proclivity to unkind, uh, you know, a lack of empathy or you witness, um, you know, something that is really going to impact them, you know, hopefully it's not at the point where, you know, I think that the point to have started to deal with it in the book, the turning point for me was when baby Violet bit her mother viciously. And it wasn't just a little bite. It drew blood. She clamped down and wouldn't let go. It was a vicious bite. And to me, that's the point where it's, it's obvious that there is something going on. Dad was an architect. Dad wanted to for things to be perfect. And my goodness, when Violet went in and cut up all her mother's clothes in her closet, and Dad blamed it. Dad got rid of the clothes and blamed it on the on the maid service. You know, Dad, that is directly enabling. That's directly enabling very disturbing behavior. Yeah, now, there were no consequences in, for Violet for that. Yeah, yeah. no, You're there right. was no consequences. Yeah, that's. Yeah, so he, I I really have to say, sure, she might have been Blythe, but Blythe did struggle to try. There's so many instances in the book where, you know, you see Blythe doing the right things, dancing with her child, providing birthday parties, you know, age-appropriate toys, organizing her room, I mean, laying down and sleeping with her, trying to talk to her, you know, was, was Blythe perfect? By no means, but I think that the toxic the, top, the thing that created this book and this scenario was kind of the perfect storm of, you know, a husband that wanted 
you know, certain things and did not want to really deal with the truth. A mother-in-law that really, you know, couldn't intervene, you know, Blythe's own sort of built-in responses. I mean, it was just kind of, that's what created this great work of fiction um, that is uh, truly a profound, I think it's going to be a bestseller. I think it's going to be, a, I think it's going to go down in, as what a great book, um, you know, that people will read for a long time, uh, really getting into the mind of a killer. Um, Whew, and boy, I, I, I tell you what, I, um, I want to leave us on a kind of funny, silly note <laughs> 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 because sometimes kids are, kids are creepy, but that doesn't mean that they're killers. Right. So I found this list of creepy kid stories on BuzzFeed and we'll link it in the notes and there's one I'll just go through like two or three of these in the time I have left my daughter and I were reading on the couch one Sunday morning it was raining outside we were wrapped up in a warm blanket she had a cup of tea I had the perfect Americano life was good my daughter looked up at me and said dad when you die can I cut you open and look inside another one the other week I was reading my two-year-old daughter a bedtime story when we finished we were talking about being having been scared of ghosts monsters trolls etc and she turned to me and said daddy I'm not scared of ghosts I asked why is that to which she replied because the one that comes into my room at night and strokes my hair is a nice one (laughs) (laughs) in the theme of of reading and writing Oh, my daughter's friend, my daughter's friend's dad, Ian, came in for a cup of tea one day when he came to pick up his daughter. My girl, Izzy, was playing with a toy sword. Ian said to her, you know, Izzy, the pin is mightier than the sword. Izzy said, I know, yeah, because you can stab someone in the neck with a pin. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was maybe a fun, light way to end this uh, <laughs> kind of heavier, um, heavier book discussion. Thank y'all so much for tuning into Bell Curve this week. You can find more information about this episode on our website, bellcurvepodcast.com. You can join in the discussion. We're primarily on LinkedIn these days. So come find us on LinkedIn. And um, then I know, Mary Scott, you had something that you wanted to share about our title sponsor, Higher Echelon Inc. You know, I just want to thank Higher Echelon from the bottom of my heart because you know, they have, they're a great company. They have wonderful philosophies, but one of the, one of the reasons they decided to sponsor our show is that they want to take some of what they do for their, for their clients in the coaching area and bring it to the masses for free. You know, I just love that about our, about our sponsor, Higher Echelon. They're a great company. They do all sorts of wonderful things to build out, you know, companies and make them better and make individuals better. But I just think that's a really great thing. Let me close out the show by saying thank you to our Kirby's for listening today. And we'll see you next time.